0: Hello, this is John Villafranco. I'm a partner in the Advertising Law Group at Kelly Dryan Warren. And today I'm going to speak about uh, challenging your competitors' advertising claims. So imagine you're an in-house attorney or you're outside counsel and your client identifies a competitor's advertising claim that your client is convinced is false and deceptive in violation of Section 5 of the FTC Act um, or Section 43 of the Lanham Act. You're asked to take action to prevent further damage to your client's market position. What are your options, and what factors will influence your recommended course of action? Assuming that some action is warranted, there are five principal options that can be pursued. You could send a letter demanding that your competitor cease and desist. You can initiate a proceeding before the National Advertising Division. You can alert state or federal regulators. You can notify the networks if the issue involves broadcast advertising or you can litigate. So we're gonna t- talk about the costs and the benefits of each of those options, and uh, and we'll end up with uh, uh, litigation as, as the, the nuclear option. All right, so as I mentioned, one option is to send a demand letter, and there are benefits to that. It's inexpensive, um, there's minimal time required. It can be pre- prepared and transmitted quickly. The sender can determine when a reply will be required With no obligation to respond to counter complaints. Um, There's no bar to publicizing the dispute, although any such publicity is likely to reduce the chances of a quick resolution. And even um, if the demand is unsuccessful in eliciting uh, or eliminating such statements, the letter sends a signal to your competitor that your company is monitoring their claims. And this could cause your competitor to exercise moderation in future advertising. Now, there are costs involved in, in going this route and one is that um, the res- a response will almost always focus on your advertising, your competitor will raise issues about claims that, that your company might be making um, in support or in the, in the marketing of their own products. It's also not likely to cause a competitor to admit any wrongdoing. The best outcome is usually a statement that the campaign has run its course and will be discontinued or will be modified for other reasons. Demand letters are also useful um, because they often establish a dialogue with an established competitor that you respect. But this might only lead to a conversation, and it might not get you the result that you hope to achieve. So um, it's almost always a a good idea to consider whether or not you want to raise this issue directly with a competitor. But in terms of uh, actually achieving the objective of of ending a competitor's advertising campaign, it's very infrequently a successful way to go. Another possibility is to raise the issue um, or or bring a National Advertising Division complaint. Um, The NAD, uh, or the National Advertising Division, is a self-regulatory body that commands the respect of national advertisers, advertising attorneys, federal and state regulators, and the judiciary. The FTC has recognized that industry consideration or cooperation can be efficient. It can also allow the FTC to conserve resources and direct them to higher priority consumer protection matters. Participation in the NAD process is voluntary, as is compliance with NAD's final rulings. The only remedy that NAD can provide is a request that the advertiser modify its advertisements if NAD finds that the advertisement is not substantiated or is otherwise not true or accurate. The NAD encourages compliance by reminding advertisers that it routinely refers cases of non-compliance to the Federal Trade Commission. Advertising issues brought to the NAD's attention will receive thorough review by competent attorneys who will apply relevant precedent in reaching a determination of whether an advertising claim is truthful non-misleading, and substantiated. The process provides for briefing and, if desired, meetings, and you almost always want to have a meeting at the NAD. Uh, A well-reasoned decision is then issued, usually within 60 to 90 days of a challenge, and and it is accompanied by a press release. Advertisers are are asked to provide a statement that will indicate whether it intends to comply with the NAD decision, uh, and the decision can be appealed to the National Advertising Review Board. If an advertiser states that it will not comply or refuses to participate, the case file is forwarded to the appropriate government agency, usually the FTC's Division of Advertising Practices. NAD rules do do not permit counterclaims, but in practice, challengers are sometimes the target of retaliatory counter-challenges. Significantly, no discovery is permitted at the NAD. This results in cost savings and relieves the challenger of having to produce documents to a competitor in response to any counterclaim that might uh, arise in, in litigation. Uh, there are uh, two time frames toward an NAD decision. One is the regular time frame, and one is the expedited time frame. And uh, the regular time frame, as I mentioned, it usually results in a decision between, um, you know, it could be uh, f- three to four months, and on the expedited side it can be much much more Uh, quicker uh, or much uh, you can get a decision more quickly and when you go with the expedited route uh, there is one less brief to be submitted and every effort is made to bring the matter to a conclusion as as quickly as possible the standard at the NAD is truthfulness and accuracy Um, there is a higher standard for advertising claims that unfairly disparage a competitor's products um, and it but uh, It does not examine whether deception has occurred or laws have been violated. The the standard, again, is truthfulness and accuracy in advertising claims. Uh, When you participate at the NAD, you must sign a statement at the outset of the case that confirms that the proceedings are not to be used for publicity purposes during or after the case. The NAD has strict rules concerning the treatment of confidential materials so that proprietary information is protected. Extrinsic evidence in the form of consumer surveys uh, is not required, but highly recommended when when challenging implied claims. As far as complying with NAD decisions, uh, if if, uh, you are the subject of a challenge, it is entirely up to you. Uh, It's a voluntary process whether or not you're going to comply. If you tell the NAD that you won't comply, that is, you won't either discontinue or modify a claim after it's been recommended that you do so, the, the NAD will forward the case file to the Federal Trade Commission for consideration. And the FTC um, may consider whether or not to open an investigation under part two of their rules of practice. That could be, that, uh, that could be a very significant uh, development if that were to occur, uh, because uh, a part two investigation can lead to a negotiated settlement that would uh, bind a company under a consent order for many years, or it could lead to litigation with the Federal Trade Commission if a company um, decides that it, it is not going to uh, comply, or if the FTC concludes that Section 5 of the FTC Act has been violated. Um, FTC referrals, uh, or the, the, the referral of a matter by the NAD to the FTC, therefore, should is something that needs to be... Uh, considered very carefully, uh, it's a it could be potentially a very dangerous outcome. Uh, there's also, you know, a lot of uh, there's been a lot of concern over the years of whether or not participation in the NAD process results in increased consumer class action filings. In in we've looked at this uh, particular issue and we've done some uh, detailed study of trends over the past. Ten years and have concluded that, in actuality, the threat of a consumer class action, a follow-on consumer class action after an NAD case, is very, very low. It's not likely to happen. All right, uh, we've mentioned now two of the options: the NAD and and a demand letter. A third um, is to just complain directly to state or federal regulators. And by this, I mean reaching out. To a state or federal regulator and ex- seeking a meeting or submitting a white paper that explains uh, that uh, the, their statute, uh, either it, whether it's a state UDAP statute or Federal Trade Commission Act, has been vi- is being violated by a competitor in their advertising practices. Now, it's important to understand uh, what the FTC standard is for deception when you're considering whether or not to bring a matter to the attention of the federal regulators. Under the FTC uh, standard, and it's the primary source, sources are the policy statements on deception and and advertising substantiation. Um, Under this standard, a representation or omission omission or practice that is likely to mislead consumers acting reasonably under the circumstances, that is the first element. So a representation, omission, or practice that is likely to mislead consumers acting reasonably under the circumstances. That representation, omission, or practice is also likely to affect the consumer's conduct or decision regarding a product or service, and the advertiser does not possess a reasonable basis for believing any representations are true at the time the representations are made. So uh, this is this is the standard that you would have to satisfy if you were to successfully bring a matter or to urge the FTC to bring a matter uh, or open an investigation in a matter uh, involving your competitor's product claims. And importantly uh, I want to point out that uh, while the standard uh, from the policy statements does uh, does uh, suggest that you have to that the advertiser has to have the substantiation at the time representations are made. It's called the prior substantiation doctrine. Uh, in practice, it's really not applied. And in fact, um, the FTC, um, sort of like the NAD, NAD invol- is concerned with the truthfulness and accuracy of the advertising. The FTC is concerned with the non-deceptive nature of the advertising uh, and, the, and the fairness of the advertising. Um, and they they will consider substantiation after the fact if it's relevant to a determination of deception or unfairness. Now there are benefits to, uh, to bringing or complaining to a, a state or federal regulator. Complaints to federal and state regulators can be made at, at very low cost and there are many government attorneys who have the skills that will enable them to understand the implications of your complaint and accurately assess the potential for consumer harm. There are multiple possible outcomes. You might realize the voluntary voluntary discontinuation of a of a practice. There might be um, a uh, referral um, back to the NAD. There might be an opening of an investigation under Part Two of the, of the rules of practices. Now the rules of practice. Now the Part Two investigation. Uh, if, if one is opened, you should understand that it could be a very long and, and time-consuming event, um, and that it, it could result in a negotiated or a litigated order that includes injunctive relief and, and possible consumer redress. But when you're the complaining party, it's important to understand that you are not going – after you make that initial complaint, you are no longer a party to the proceeding. Um, if the FTC does proceed, they will um, do it confidentially and, and in, accordance of, uh, uh, in accordance with their rules. So once the complaint is made, you have no control over how or if the investigation will proceed. Indeed, an investigation can carry on for years without your knowledge that, is even, that it is even underway. There are statutes and regulations, as I mentioned, regarding the maintenance of confidentiality during investigations, and those statutes and regulations prohibit regulators from sharing information about progress. And if publicity is important to your company's challenge, this is not the best form. Uh, You you should also understand that if you submit a white paper or other documentary evidence, it will be subject to a FOIA request. Uh, for that reason complaints to regulators are often made orally further while there is no risk of a counterclaim here like there would be in litigation there's always the risk that arises when you grab the tiger by the tail educating the government about an industry concern poses risk of increased scrutiny of the entire industry in other words your company your company's advertising and its related documents should be clean before you alert a regulator to your competitor's advertising practices. The most important factor that the FTC will consider in their determination of whether or not to open an investigation into a, into your competitor's claim concerns uh, whether or not there is actual consumer harm. To the extent that the FTC believes that Consumers are being harmed by your competitors' practices. And I don't mean just economic harm. Um, They will, they are more likely to act. We see this in particular situations where an advertising claim might affect a vulnerable population, or might be targeted toward a vulnerable population like the children or the elderly. Uh, Also, issues that have been identified by the FTC leadership as enforcement priorities are also more likely to generate FTC attention. The FTC will also consider the number of complaints about a company in its Consumer Sentinel database. If there are a significant, if there is a significant number of complaints in the database, it's more likely that the FTC might take action. Conversely, if the dispute is perceived as a matter between competitors only, regulators are less likely to commit limited resources to investigation and resolution. Instead, they will expect the parties to resolve the issue through other means, such as negotiation, self-regulation, or litigation. Now, I've been focusing mostly on the Federal Trade Commission, but uh, complaints to state the state attorneys general uh, really fall into the same category. And an advertiser can file a complaint with a state AG uh, alleging that a competitor is violating the state unfair business practices or consumer protection statutes. Now uh, there are, like these other courses of action, pros and cons. On the pro side, uh, some state AGs and even some local district attorneys, in particular in California, are very aggressive in pursuing deceptive advertising claims. An AG investigation can trigger a negative publicity for your competitor, which is undoubtedly one of your objectives. It could be very welcome. Uh, Involving the AG is an excellent resource for um, regional advertisements if the AG believes that consumers are injured by the false claims. And the cost in an AG complaint is minimal. Uh, Now, there are cons and costs involved in in pursuing an AG complaint. Uh, For one, like the FTC, when you involve the AG, you don't have any control over the proceeding, and there's no guarantee that any action will be taken at all. Um, It very well may be that advertising issues are not a priority for an AG in the state where you want to make your complaint. There's also no formal process and timing is unpredictable. It may take a very long time before it is resolved. And like the FTC, you might not have any, you, you won't have any idea whether uh, the AG is, has initiated a complaint and is moving against a particular campaign. And finally, a remedy, uh, the remedies here are limited by jurisdiction. Uh, it, it, it probably sounds obvious, but state AG's jurisdiction extends only to the boundaries of the state. So uh, we've touched on now three of the five options, and, and there are two more. Uh, I want to just mention very briefly that uh, complaints can be made to networks, uh, and, so, and this, of course, only applies when the issue is, involves claims that are made in broadcast advertising. Uh, but an advertiser can go directly to the networks in these situations. A network challenge involves very little cost, it's fast and it can be publicized. The principal networks uh, have each have advertising standards and procedures that apply to challenges. Often, you know, what your client wants is to make it stop. You want to stop a campaign, and a network challenge can end a campaign even if it is only temporarily. In this regard, it has the same effect as a temporary restraining order, but at a fraction of the cost. If a complaint is pending at the NAD or in federal court, the networks will usually suspend review of a challenge until the pending complaint is resolved. Now, some would argue that success at the networks is more difficult due to the network's obvious financial interest in running national advertisements. While this has uh, not been my experience, it is a common perception. Um, but uh, a network option, it, it very well may be the quickest way to to bringing down a campaign. I, I think. In order to prevail on a network challenge, though, um, you're gonna really need to be in the right. I remember we had one situation years ago for uh, Nextel, which had their push-to-talk brand. A competitor came out with a phone that had limited push-to-talk capabilities, and on the opening weekend of a football season, they uh, ran advertising that, uh, without naming Nextel specifically, Uh, that included the Nextel Chirp uh, for their push-to-talk feature. And given that the push-to-talk feature was really an integral part of their market position, Nextel uh, acted uh, quickly, and they actually availed themselves of a number of options. They complained directly to the competitor in a demand letter. They uh, brought the issue up to regulators, uh, and uh, they uh, complained to the network's and they filed a, a lawsuit, and we're going to turn to the lawsuit in a second under Section 43A. Of all of these options, the one that was the most successful happened to be the, most, the, the least expensive, and that was they complained to the networks. And their position was so strong that the networks decided to uh, tell that competitor that it had to pull the campaign pending an outcome in, in the litigation. And the network's actions, um, which really—I mean—the the entire cost was just in putting a letter together, having a few phone calls with network executives. Um, it it re- it achieved the 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 result in a in a very quick, and inexpensive way. All right, so we've talked now about self-regulatory options, uh, direct attempts to resolve the matter, complaints to federal regulators, and to the networks. The very last option. And the most expensive option, um, but frequently the the most effective option is to bring a lawsuit under Section 43 of the the Lanham Act. The Lanham Act, which is 15 U.S.C. Section 1125, allows an advertiser to file a claim to recover for injury resulting from false and or misleading claims by competitors. A plaintiff in in a Lanham Act lawsuit must show that the competitor's ad contains a false statement of fact about its own or another's product, the statement deceives or has a tendency to deceive, the statement is material, that is, it affects the purchasing decision, the statement appears in commercial advertising in interstate commerce, and the statement is likely to cause injury. Under the Lanham Act, liability arises if the commercial message or statement is either one, literally false or two, literally true or ambiguous, but has a tendency to deceive consumers because of an implied message. If a claim is literally or expressly false, courts may enjoin the claim without reference to its impact on the buying public. Otherwise, the plaintiff bears the burden of proving, usually through the use of a consumer survey, that consumers are actually receiving the challenged implied claim and that the claim is false. While Lanham litigation will lead to resolution, it will take 10 to 12 months on average, if not longer, to resolve. It also will lead to reflexive counterclaims and the attendant discovery, which could substantially disrupt a company's business operations and lead to disclosure of potentially damaging documents. Money damages are rare, and like all litigation, it's, it is expensive and time-consuming. For these reasons, the Lanham Act litigant should proceed only with the strongest of claims and with full expectation that counterclaims will follow. When your competitor's false advertising threatens to cause irreparable injury, like it did in the Nextel case that I just mentioned, you can move for a preliminary injunction, which, if granted, would end the campaign immediately, albeit temporarily, until there is an ultimate decision on the merits, but if you are successful in prevailing on a preliminary injunction motion, almost always uh, that will resolve the, the case and, and there'll be some sort of a negotiated settlement after that. To prevail on a PI motion, a plaintiff must show, among other things, likelihood of success on the merits, and, and, th- and this showing will require the plaintiff to argue the entire case, supported by relevant evidence, in a very tight time frame, usually about 30 days. The filing of a PI motion sends a very clear signal to the marketplace and to the court that the challenged advertising is false and/or misleading; that the company is prepared to prove this allegation through testimony, documents, and extrinsic evidence; that there is a reparable injury that will, and, and it will result if the claims continue; and that the company is prepared to incur the associated costs of bringing the case. And I mentioned that those costs can be substantial. And but again, more important and maybe more importantly, there will be a substantial disruption in the company's business as both parties prepare to present their respective cases. This will include depositions, document discovery, including most importantly emails, interviews, development of expert testimony, uh, and and other aspects of litigation and discovery. In addition, counterclaims are in near certainty, and that requires a a careful plaintiff to identify potential vulnerabilities and weigh the associated costs of opening up these areas of inquiry. To recover monetary damages, a plaintiff must prove the elements of of a false advertising claim, that actual consumer deception or confusion occurred, and that the false advertising was material to consumers, causing plaintiff's injuries. When the challenged advertising makes an express misleading comparison or references or refers to your product in a deceptive way, courts often take the position that causation and injury are presumed. Where an advertisement relates to a product and makes direct comparative claims, demonstrating a reasonable belief of injury is generally sufficient to establish a reasonable likelihood of injury. Where products are not obviously in competition with the advertiser's products, or otherwise not mentioned in the ad, you, you must uh, make a more substantial showing of injury and causation, which may require survey evidence or expert testimony. It's important to know that the law under the Lanham Act varies by circuit. For example, in some circuits, an advertiser may feel reasonably secure from a Lanham Act challenge demanding substantiation for an advertising claim where the traditional rule has been that plaintiff has the burden to prove the falsity of advertising claims. In other circuits, uh, the, there might be a, a different view of the law, and some courts endorse uh, the concept of, comp- uh, of an advertisement being completely unsubstantiated where and per se false. Um, but the, the important point to understand is that you need to be very careful when deciding where to bring a Lanham Act action on, on what the law in a particular circuit might be. Uh, the, I would say that the, the circuit with the most, uh, the, the largest body of Lanham Act law on the advertising side is, is clearly the second circuit in New York, and uh, it's where we see most national advertising claims being litigated. So that uh, sums up the litigation option under the Lanham Act. And that's our fifth and final option for uh, advertisers or, or companies that want to challenge their, adverta- their competitors' advertising claims. We've written a bunch on this, and you can find uh, articles on our, on our website. And uh, for more information, you can always turn to Adlaw Access, which is our blog.